Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. The oil price is definitely hitting the economy badly, but even the Kremlin is getting worried that actually it's beginning to project the possibility of disorder on the streets or elite conspiracies against the Kremlin, one thing or the other. An economy in trouble. A scandal involving billions in offshore banks and shell companies. Seemingly endless military entanglements. Sounds like a recipe to bring down any world leader. Today on War College, we'll look at what makes Russian President Vladimir Putin such a special case. You're listening to War College, a weekly discussion of a world in conflict focusing on the stories behind the front lines. Here's your host, Jason Fields. Hello and welcome to War College. I'm Reuters Opinion Editor Jason Fields. And I'm Matthew Galt, Contributing Editor with War is Boring. Today we're talking with Dr. Mark Galliotti. He's an expert on modern Russia. He's also a clinical professor of global affairs at New York University. Currently, he's a visiting fellow in Moscow with the European Council on Foreign Relations. Today, he's here to update us on the state of Russia and Vladimir Putin's government. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. So I'm just going to start off with a very basic question. What kind of shape is Vladimir Putin's government in right now? Well, it looks pretty solid. Vladimir Putin's own personality, sort of uh, approval ratings are up in the 80-something percents. But on the other hand, there is always the signs of, of some concern. Um, the oil price has definitely is hitting the economy badly, and that's really beginning to be felt seriously a, a, across the board. And we've just had the news that a new National Guard is being created out of existing public order forces, which is clearly going to be a Praetorian Guard force under a hand-picked crony of Putin's. And that suggests that even the Kremlin is getting worried that actually it's beginning to project the possibility of disorder on the streets or elite conspiracies against the Kremlin, one thing or the other. So wait, is that only inside Moscow or is it something that's being organized in a national way? Oh, it's, it's, it's national. Essentially what it is, it takes the interior troops of the interior ministry, which were a force of about 170,000 um, paramilitary security forces, and as to them, the Amon, who are the, the riot police, and Sober, who are sort of the kind of SWAT teams. So essentially all the guys who were responsible for, for public order are being taken out of the Interior Ministry, um, in part because the Interior Minister himself is a career cop called Kolokolsev, who clearly regards his job as being a cop rather than a headbreaker, um, and then being put into a separate specialist unit or force, the National Guard, under Zolotov, who was Putin's former um, head of personal security. And this is actually going to be national. Again, this is one of the differences. By, by also bringing in police elements, it means that there will now be National Guard at a much sort of lower level in smaller towns than the old Interior Ministry troops were. So this is definitely a, a nationwide security force. How does it compare with the militia as it was set up in the Soviet Union, which was sort of the cops and paramilitary? And... Essentially, the, sort of the, the structures have been basically kept the same. Uh, I mean, it's interesting, if you want to look at so the, the Ministry of Internal Affairs, the MVD, is actually something that has moved from, it, it was a czarist institution, it became a Soviet institution, then it became a post-Soviet institution, with actually strikingly little change in some ways. 
They, they changed the militia to being called the police as part of the reforms under the uh, presidency of Dmitry Medvedev, who was a little bit more liberal, but more to the point, much more of a, had a, a legal approach to things. He wanted to sort of um, make everything more legally square. And, and to be honest, the, the regular police are actually much, much more recognisably cops um, than anything else. They, they, they become, on the whole, more, more professionalised. They're, they're, they're not about political control. But these forces we're talking about, the interior troops, which are now going to be part of the National Guard, I mean, they're, they're, they're very different. I mean, they definitely were, just as under the Soviet times, their job is to keep the population in check. That's what they're trained for. That's what they're equipped for. That's what they're recruited for. When you say keep the population in check, what does that look like on the street? What are these guys actually doing out there? Well, I mean, the interior troops we don't see very much on the streets normally. Um, they are a barracked, militarised force. You see them, and they're usually at things like football matches, political demonstrations, and, and, and so forth. When push comes to shove, though, um, first of all, the, the, these can be deployed as, a, as, as riot police. Um, so-called cosmonauts because of the way that they, they look in their bubble helmets and everything else. Um, but they also, I mean, they, they are fully paramilitarised in the sense of they are essentially equipped as light infantry. We've seen the interior troops, they were, for example, deployed in Chechnya, where they actually sort of carried out in the Second War much of the majority of the fighting. We still see them operating in a counterinsurgency role in, in the North Caucasus more, more generally. So they, they basically cover a full spectrum from riot police duties with rubber truncheons all the way through to all-out counterinsurgency. And, and the whole point is most of the operational units are precisely configured so that they can do anything along that spectrum. So in a way, you can deploy them as riot cops, but then if, and I think this is a incredibly unlikely, you get the sort of um, protest movement that arises as happened in Ukraine, they can just as easily be reconfigured as much more sort of um, violent and vicious forces. And as you said, they now are reporting more or less directly up into the Kremlin. Yeah, exactly. I mean, th this is the key thing. I mean, there's, 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 no, there's no new bodies being added to the roster. But the point is they're being taken out of the interior ministry where there was an additional layer of uh, sort of command. And now they, they, under Zolotov, they report directly to the government. They're an independent agency, which basically means there is no one to say, hang on there, if the Kremlin decides that someone's head needs breaking. Mark, you said this is a sign that Moscow might be worried. I'm curious why Moscow might be worried right now. Well, this is the interesting thing. I mean, there are, there are clearly some future um, issues to be concerned about. And you've got to remember, a force like this, you don't stand up overnight. Um, I mean, the laws have to be passed. Well, since Putin's uh, pr proposed it, we know, we know it's going to pass. I don't think there's any real question about that. But, you know, but just simply, actually, just simply, just the, the transfer of forces to this new command just will, will take a while to be properly stood up. The first thing people are looking at is in September, there are elections to the, the Duma, the, the legislature. And again, although this is not exactly going to be a cliffhanging election in the sense of who wins, we know it's going to be Putin's party. The thing is, to get the kind of results that they need to demonstrate, give the appearance of massive legitimacy, they're almost certainly going to have to rig the vote. And we've seen in the past that particularly blatant vote rigging did actually lead to a series of protests called the Balotnaya protests. So that is one possibility. Possibility number two is labour unrest. We're seeing a growing tide of labour unrest as people's conditions of living get worse and worse and worse. 
And although at the moment it's it's wildcat, short sort of short duration, little pinpricks here and there, there is the possibility. And the interesting thing is actually the police have already sort of basically expressed some reservations about being used against labour unrest. They're saying, look, unless these people are actually getting violent, this is not our job to, to disrupt these kind of protests. So maybe that might have been another impulse for creating this new structure. Then next year we have the 100th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, and although Putin is going to want to sort of not really celebrate a communist re revolution, um, the Communist Party is. So it would be interesting to see what that is. And then in 2018 we have the presidential elections. So this is basically a period in which we, we, we have a sort of a, a two-year political season um, of increasing importance at a time when actually, since the, the Russian economy is not going to improve dramatically overnight or even over the next couple of years, actually in which people's quality of life is going to be slipping and slipping and slipping. But all that said, I really don't see any signs of any kind of mass protests at the moment. And therefore, for me, one of the most striking things about this move, and the most worrying, is what it says about the mood of the Kremlin. Um, we know that in some ways Putin has become more and more insulated from Russian day-to-day -day life, um, more and more is now only listening to a very small handful of people of a similar authoritarian and ultranationalist bent. And therefore, it's not so much about whether the country is really ripe for protest, it's whether the Kremlin is starting to slip into a form of paranoia that they think that actually protests, plots, and so forth are abounding. Oh, boy. So when you say that about Russia and you say about the Kremlin, that's particularly terrifying because, of course, they're very familiar with that in Russian history, right? I mean, you have, I mean, in the communist era where the Kremlin was very cut off and uh, people suffered in the millions. But, well, yes, but I mean, no, we're, we're not talking about that. You know, we're not heading for some, some new Stalinism or whatever. It's more that I just, my, my concern is that, and in some ways this actually echoes what we see with Russia's moves outside the country as well, that when you have an elite that really doesn't have a good sense of, of, of what's going on in, in the real world and is perhaps prone to seeing conspiracies against it, it's much more likely to overreact. Just as if it's being fed comforting lies, which I think is also one of the problems, it's much more likely to think that it's stronger and more powerful and has more freedom of manoeuvre than it really has, and therefore we can actually get stupid and dangerous decisions being made. Well, talking about that insularity actually comes in very nicely with what just came out in these Panama Papers, right? What was amazing is we find out that a cellist has done remarkably well for himself in the tunes of billions of dollars. Uh, the cellist, I'm sure, is very, very talented, but is also Vladimir Putin's best friend. Is that is correct? Yeah, well, certainly sort of one of and godfather to one of his daughters and so forth. Yes. Yes, I mean, but again, I think, you know, this is one of the interesting things. When, when the Panama Papers first splashed, clearly the big story was Putin, who's after all, whose actual name isn't in any of these papers, but nonetheless, it's fairly clear. His, his fingerprints are very clearly all over it. Um, the Putin story was, was the one that got the news because, yes, it's all about $2 billion being salted away, particularly through this, this, this cellist, Roald Dugin. Not much of a splash here, though. And that's not just because of media control and so forth, though obviously the, the papers did, or the, certainly the TV media, which is all under government control, um, did, did very much minimise it but because it didn't really tell us anything we didn't know. 
It told us detail. It told us perhaps exactly which company and which person was being used and gave us a certain sort of fun, titivating appeal there. But, you know, it, it's not news to anybody that there's massive levels of embezzlement. Not so much because I think Putin himself is building up a, a Swiss bank account or a Panamanian bank account. I, I think he's, he's one of these figures who actually power is his thing rather than money. But money is, is, is almost a sort of a, a symptom of his power. Um, and therefore, th this is the interesting thing that, you know, the Panama Papers prove that um, Russia is deeply corrupt and run by an embezzling kleptocracy, just as they might also prove that the Pope is Catholic. <laughs> so it, I was going to say, if you're Putin and you're more interested in control than you are money, you still need money in order to buy that control, right? I mean, you have to have favors to dole out. This is it. I mean, I think in, in this respect, what happens is that sort of money, money is in some ways almost the, the, the symptom and the symbol of, of power. You know, if you are an oligarch, the way you get money is by being granted um, state contracts that you then use to you know, embezzle and, and, and rip off. Um, and you generally kick a certain amount back. And what that kind of creates is, is, is a slush fund that is used. Now, Putin himself doesn't tend to use that. Um, when Putin wanted to build himself a palace, he basically just diverted some money that had been gained for the health service to build himself a palace. When he wanted a yacht, he got an oligarch to give him a yacht. Um, you know, Putin is not someone who needs money these days. But on the other hand, there are so many people around him for whom money is important. Um, but when it comes down to it, as I said, the key thing is that the currency of Russia is power. If you are vastly rich in Russia today, you are vastly rich in Russia today. You could well be poor or in prison tomorrow if the state decides to go against you. But on the other hand, if you're powerful in Russia today, you can monetize that with, without, without any problem. So this is why the, sort of, the money is almost just the, sort of the, the slush fund and the representation of, of, of the power that, that actually sort of surrounds Putin and those whom Putin blesses. And I guess it's also incredibly obvious just how off the books it all is. I mean, forget Vladimir Putin's being given a yacht, but even smaller things that are just so blatant. For example, the spokesman, I, I'm sorry I've forgotten his name, but who was wearing a $650,000 watch and, of course, has a state salary of 100000 or less, right? It just, it's all right out there. Do you find that people that you've spoken to who are not uh, part of the structure, do they mind? Or do they think that this is just what's supposed to happen? In some ways, this is, this is what's so phenomenally depressing. No one has any illusions about the corruption of everyone within the system. But I think what's happened is essentially that there's been this um, decay of the kind of imagination that suggests that things could be otherwise. I think for, for many Russians, corruption is like the weather. You don't get a say in it, you just have to endure it. Um, and it's something that people get annoyed about, but when they get annoyed about it, it's not actually about the, you know, the spokesman with, with the, the half a million dollar watch or whatever. Or, I mean, again, there was a fascinating case of the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church, who was photographed with, again, some ludicrously expensive watch um, on his wrist. And then they clumsily airbrushed it out but they forgot to airbrush it off the shiny table at which, he was, at which he was sitting so that it was still clearly visible. 
that kind of thing offended people, but not so much because of the watch, but because people had, you know, basically a, a, such a clumsy attempt had been made to cover up. Russians expect their leaders to be corrupt. What bugs them is the corruption that is actually visible to them. The fire inspector who comes to your shop and because you need to have his, his signature, he will extort money from you. The traffic cop who flags you down and claims that you are speeding and you know that it's just simply a, you know, a moment of extortion. That kind of thing, the stuff that's really in their face, people are, are resistant about. But I do feel that this is, this is the Putin regime's Achilles heel. Um, we've had attempts at sort of protest movements before to, that try to mobilise corruption. What no one has yet managed to do is really reach out to the Russian people and say, you know the issues that really matter to you, your kid's school that has not been rebuilt, um, the street outside that should have been resurfaced. That is not just because of someone in the mayor's office, but it's because of a whole system that goes all the way to the Kremlin. No one's managed to kind of yet make that connection. And the interesting thing is at the moment, it's actually the Communist Party, which up to now has been very tame and very much happy to be the sort of false opposition which is beginning to, to make a bit of a fuss about that. I don't know if that's going to come to anything or not. But I think th this is the issue. All Russians are unhappy with corruption. No one believes that anything can be done about it, and therefore, why complain? Who, just in case it comes up again in our uh, next few years, who's the current leader of the Communist Party in Russia? The current leader is a chap by the name Gennady Zyuganov. He is definitely not someone who is going to be um, raising the red flag and storming the barricades. I mean, he's, he basically is bought and paid for um, in the sense that he has accepted this role as being the fake opposition leader. And he goes up and he huffs and he puffs every now and then. But frankly, if he was offered power, I suspect he'd run a mile. But the point is, there is a changing move within the Communist Party grassroots. It used to be very much the Communist Party was basically made up of Stalinist grandmothers. Um, and it was a sort of a, a dying demographic. But you're now getting a new bunch of people in their 20s and their 30s for whom this is just the sort of, if you want to join a, a party that is in opposition to the government, the communists are basically the only, the only group in town. So they're, they're not necessarily communists. They, they don't read Marx and Lenin or anything like that. But I think these are what's pushing the central communist party leadership into getting a little bit more, more aggressive. Um, but I, I can't help feeling that, that, that Zyuganov himself would, would much rather a quiet life um, but, but it's interesting enough, when you actually see him at press conferences these days, he's often flanked by much younger figures, and I almost want to see if some of them have got his arm twisted behind his back. Just uh, changing the subject a little bit, we were talking about uh, the money in private hands. There was something I read this morning about how Russia is actually reaching close to the end of their reserves, meaning that by 2017, you know, they're running into deficit in the budget, they're, you don't have the... Uh, energy wealth to plug the gap. Do you think that there's real trouble on the horizon as far as actually paying for the government goes? Not really. Um, yes, there are, there are real challenges. I mean, Russia itself is not running out of money, the country. I mean, there's, there, 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 there's a, you know, still a fair amount of money. And uh, ironically enough, um, the ruble tumbling in value because of the oil price fall has in some ways actually been, been a help because it's allowed them to pay off a certain amount of debts and things a lot more easily. Um, but on the other hand, absolutely, th this, is a, this is affecting the government's tax, tax base. Uh, and although they have brought in cuts across the board, um, including to the security apparatus and including to the military, which up to now have always been the, sort of the, the sacred cows, um, which were protected even, for example, in 2008, when there was a, an, an, another, the last major financial crisis for Russia, 
um, still that's not enough. Um, and what they're having to do is obviously make more cuts, but also do things like plundering the pension funds. Um, that What they're basically doing is that they have been burning through their rainy day reserve fund. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's pretty much gone. They've already had to raid the pension funds for spending money on Crimea. So, so that, that's what's going on. But I mean, exactly, there, there is a limit to how long they can do that. They're not going to run out of money, but they are going to run out of the ability to spend like they're spending now. And so this is, this is why tough choices are going to have to be made. So I think this might be a related question. And you can tell me because maybe it isn't a related question. But Russia, Vladimir Putin made a very dramatic announcement about pulling back from Syria. You wrote a terrific column for us at Reuters sort of explaining why it would be that they would pull some of their weaponry out. I mean, is that related to economics? And also there are now reports that maybe the pullout wasn't as large scale as originally thought. Well, Syria was always, frankly, a pretty cheap operation. Um, it was it was really quite quite strikingly small, after all. I mean, it's amazing how thirty planes can not only change the sort of course of a war, but also break the West's determination to try and diplomatically isolate Russia. I mean, in that respect, it was actually one one has to give the devil his due. I mean, quite 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 a brilliant political as much as military operation. But as I said, it was relatively cheap, quite small. Um, a lot of what they'd be doing, I mean, they, they, they would have been doing in much the same in training exercises and so forth. The Russians are training really quite, quite extensively and hard these days. Um, and so what they've done is, I mean, they, they have drawn down their forces, but they've also reconfigured them. Um, they've taken out their Sukhoi-25 ground attack planes and they've put in a lot more attack helicopters which are really more fitting for the kind of urban operations that sort of the, the next phase of the war involves, where you're actually going to have to be sort of, you know, flying ops quite close to the front line, you know, put, dropping ordnance close to your advancing forces. Um, what they have done, though, is they, they, they pulled out a lot of their ground troops. There, there had been a slow creep up of ground forces, including artillery. Originally, they had ground forces, just some special troops, special forces, and basically protection elements for their airbase. And bit by bit, they'd moved in a little bit more, they'd had some tanks, they, then they sort of put in some artillery, and then when you've got artillery, you've got to have some infantry to support them and that kind of thing. And bit by bit, that was creeping up. And, then, and this is what they pulled out. And in part, they've replaced them with mercenaries. There is a, a Russian uh, private military company called uh, Wagner, which is actually fighting on the front line. And it's clear that this is just a bit of deniable sleight of hand, because actually uh, private military companies are not, under, are not allowed under Russian law. But the point is, this is clearly being set up by the government to put in Russian forces so that essentially when people start coming home in zinc boxes, and dozens of them have, it doesn't appear in the official casualty rate. So what we have seen is a slight reduction in the forces, a reconfiguration of the forces, and a substitution um, of official troops with some mercenaries. But no, I mean, none, none of this is really for financial reasons. All right, Mark, you've updated us about Syria, but what about Ukraine? What's going on there right now? It's still a real mess, uh, and I think it's a mess for, for several reasons. It's a mess in part because I don't think the Russians have actually yet got a strategy. Um, they know what they would like to happen. But since that, which is another one, essentially Kiev bending the knee and, and finally acknowledging that they're, that they're part of Russia's sphere of influence, isn't happening and frankly isn't going to happen 
Um, not least because the government is just too weak. I mean, even if actually President Poroshenko wanted to do that, there's no way he, he, he could push that through. Um, so so, so there, I think the Russians are, are, in, are in this strategic quandary. Um, and so every now and then they, 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 they slightly escalate the fighting and at other times they, 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 they draw it down. The Minsk II peace agreement, which is always a deeply flawed to the point of dangerously stupid um, agreement, it isn't going to get anywhere. It, it is not going to be applied and therefore we just have to have to get, get used to that idea and whether, the, whether there's going to be a Minsk III or not, who knows. But the trouble is, I think the thing is there's, there's two conflicts going on. One is within Russia. Um, you know, an idea of well, what do we want to try and do with the Donbass, but also they're not absolutely in control. Um, a lot of the rebel groups have their own opinions, um, are often badly controlled, um, and sometimes I mean I think we we've seen fighting some of the fighting around the, the town of, of Avdiivka, which is controlled by the Ukrainians, but it's a sort of it's the ob- one of the obvious sort of flashpoints. I'm not convinced that actually Moscow started that fighting. I think that was actually started by local militias basically wanting to force Moscow into a more aggressive positioning. As a counterpoint to what you were what we were saying about the Panama Papers earlier, I wanted to ask about Ukraine's prime minister. He just resigned. Would you walk us through why he resigned? Um, well, firstly, because, I mean, there's probably no more unpopular figure yeah, in in Ukraine at the moment, um, than Yatsenyuk, the the well, I say, I say outgoing prime minister. Um, as of today, when we were recording this, um, Parliament was unable to actually get a vote through accepting his resignation. So although everyone knows he's going to have to go, um, even that the Ukrainian Parliament has not been able to actually sort of pass yet, which unfortunately says says, says something about the, the status status of, of, of Ukrainian politics. No, I mean, I mean, he he had to go because, well, for a variety of reasons. One is, um, you know, he clearly, whether it's simply because of weakness, whether it's because um, he was in hock to the oligarchs or whatever, um, he had made some moves in terms of reforming the economic structures enough to be able to get certain IMF funds. Um, but basically, Ukraine is still waiting for the reforms which were at the heart of the Maidan protests. Um, and in so many ways, Yatsenyuk actually turned out to be the obstacle to that. Um, so, you know, in a way, he, he had become politically hugely, you know, great liability. Secondly, President Poroshenko is now in a position to try and um, basically put in one of his own cronies, um, as as the new um, prime minister Groisman, um, and again, I mean, I think this this demonstrates the extent to which Poroshenko is, who we should also mention was was in the Panama Papers himself, um, having said that he would divest himself of his assets and in fact just simply slid it off to an offshore. Something that the that that is a bit of news that the Russian media has been heavily playing, surprisingly enough. Um, but I think this is in, in in some ways, you know, Yatsenyuk was, has been a convenient scapegoat in that respect. Um, the thing is, at the moment, we see the Ukrainian political class deeply divided, um, and essentially an anti-reform element within it that is out of step with the country as a whole um, is still able to. Um, if not dominate the political system, but block any attempts at, at meaningful change. And and the problem is that actually is leading to disillusion on one side and a building up of pressure on the other. You've got new political movements, particularly one that's actually backed by former Georgian president, now governor of Odessa, Saakashvili, um, which is clearly talking about you know seriously attacking corruption, 
The problem is that to seriously attack corruption is essentially to declare war on the dominant political elite. Um, so in some ways, Yatsenyuk's departure is just business as usual. It's just going to be a reshuffling of, of, of an existing governmental elite. But on another level, it says something about, I think, the, the increasing instability of this political situation. I understand, Mark, that this may be our last conversation with you as a New York University professor. Is that correct? Well, I, I have a few more months yet on the uh, NYU payroll, um, I'm glad to say. Thank you very much, NYU. Um, but then after, yes, come uh, August, I, I'm relocating to Prague, um, where I'm, I'm setting up a still still in, in, in conversations with, with with a few places but also but essentially to concentrate more on on writing and research and uh given for the things that i research i really need to be in russia because for some strange reason people don't want to chat about crime or security services on on the phone or by internet um it'll also be a lot easier for me to be close to my body of research do you have any idea what the next book might be well, um, there is, I should mention, an Osprey book on the modern Russian army that's actually just, just at the moment of being, being finished. Um, there is a book on the uh, history of Russian organised crime that, that's, that's a little bit further in the pipeline. Um, and then there is a, another big project, but I'll, I'll, I'll keep that close to my chest, so it gives you an excuse to invite me back in the future. As if we needed one. Mark Galliotti, thank you very, very much. My great pleasure. Thanks for listening to War College. I wanted to take a minute to address a grave sin of omission. I've never thanked the people who make this show possible but aren't on the air. Craig Hedick developed the show with me and was its producer for months. Bethel Hapti took over as producer a few months ago, and if our audio quality made the jump after that, she's the one to blame. One last thing. Next up is a guest episode from Reuters' own Jamila Knowles, she and guest Stephen Gray will be talking about spying. Forget James Bond, forget Kim Philby. We learn about the real men and women doing the dirty work.